Hello, and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Kalina, and I'm joined, as always, by Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, Kalina. Today, we're going to Spain, to a moment called the Spanish Miracle. This decade of incredible economic growth in Spain came after years of stagnation and war. It was fueled, in part, by the opening of the country and the impact of tourism. We'll discuss the Spanish miracle itself, what led to it, and how tourism in Spain has had a lasting effect on Spanish culture, society, and economics. But first, as we do every week, we'll discuss a few pieces of travel news. Brian? Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk about, I think the big news this week is the vaccine, and there's a lot of talk in the travel world about what that will mean and how quickly people will get back to travel especially international travel and how the vaccine might facilitate all that. One thing that I saw that sort of throws a kink in in some of that planning is an article that was about the nature of distributing the vaccine throughout the world. So I guess there's two vaccines and both of them need to be kept at pretty low temperatures um, when they're being shipped. And So I guess the idea would be that they'd create a bunch of batches of the vaccine and they'd they'd ship them by plane to various places in the world and then distribute them. But what I wasn't aware of was actually a lot of the cargo that gets shipped all over the world is often shipped in the hulls of passenger planes. So there is only a finite amount of room on these planes. And when there are fewer passenger planes flying, there's less cargo space globally to ship things. And so because there's actually less passenger plane traffic in the world, there is actually less of a capacity to distribute other cargo unrelated to passengers like the vaccine. So there's a little bit of a catch-22 in that passenger plane travel can't ramp up until there's enough vaccine throughout the world that travel can kind of get back online. But perhaps travel really can't get back online until there's enough vaccine distributed. And so anyway, there's sort of a bottleneck. There's just less capacity to distribute the vaccine mm. quickly. And it looks like they'll they'll still be able to, to distribute it. But then that will that distribution of the vaccine will fuel more passenger plane traffic, which will then enable more cargo cargo space traffic. So kind of an interesting piece um, that uh, that I thought was something something to flag for this week. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if for the vaccination problem, if there's like some solution where like you can take this flight to Paris, but first you have to get vaccinated. So like. You are going onto a plane full of vaccinations and you're going because you've been vaccinated and now you're increasing passenger air travel. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe that could be a thing. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking outside of the box. It's like there Um, used to be this service where you could give up your luggage space to like a shipping company and get a discount on your ticket. You would like it was like you signed up and to be a part of this service and basically when you bought a ticket, you then like put in your information into this other website and they're like, okay, we're going to reimburse you 50 bucks or a hundred bucks off your ticket. And because you don't need your luggage space and then we're going to use that luggage space. It was like short lived and it was kind of like early 2000s startup 
test the test company that I don't think ever got off the ground, but it, it was seems like, yeah, had its time. It's an idea. Could do that. All the travel news I found this week has to do with COVID tests. A couple of airlines are starting new like trials about testing people before they get on the plane. United and British Airways are both doing this. And there was a flight from Newark to London, I guess last week, um, where they tested everyone's United flight and they they like heralded it as the first like COVID free flight because they made sure before people got on that they didn't have it. One passenger did have it and was kept behind mm-hmm. um, in, in Newark. So I think that seems promising. That seems like a way even before the vaccine to like start opening up some travel again. But then I also read that some travelers are buying on the black market fake COVID tests, negative tests that they're using to like get through uh, security, which is not cool. But apparently that's a thing that people are doing right now. Yeah, actually, I did. I came across an article about that somewhere as well. It seems inevitable. I mean, it seems like it's it's funny. We've been the way everyone has talked about travel. Mm hmm. And all these new rules since COVID, there is this idea that, oh, you get a test and then you show someone your your test result. And then you've basically got like a get out of jail free pass. Right. And it's like, you're good to mm-hmm. go. But I've never really heard people discuss what exactly constitutes like a legal test. You know, what what you have to show someone to, yeah. to be... And so it seems to make sense that like if there's no universally accepted pass for like what counts as like I've been tested and I'm negative, it's ripe for mm-hmm. for counterfeits. Exploitation. Yeah. Because yeah, well, when I got tested before, you, I got an email from it was like the city MD like portal being like this was negative. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it'd be pretty easy if it were to say positive to just go in with a little bit of Photoshop and totally, totally make it, make it a negative test. So but don't do that. Um, don't don't say that you're negative if you don't know. Um, yeah, it does sound like there's they may be instituting some sort of universal sort of app where you would put in your information in the app. There's like a few different, I think, ideas around like how to actually register people so that it's a little more official and a little more foolproof to people trying to counterfeit. That's good. I think this testing the airport thing makes a lot of sense. And I think they're doing it in Cuba, actually, for free for people arriving in Cuba. Yeah. But I don't know if we want to have time to get into it, but there's yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) there's a a lot of uh, talk in the Cuban community, because apparently if you're a foreigner arriving in Cuba, you get tested for free. So if you're like a Russian going to Cuba on vacation, they've had a lot of Russians coming into the country. You get tested and it's free. But if you're. Oh, what it is, is if you're they subsidize the test if you're going to a hotel. But if you're arriving in country and you're going to visit to a person's house to visit family, you have to pay for the test, which essentially penalizes Cuban-Americans coming in to visit their Mm. family. So obviously not a popular and not very popular among the Cuban-Americans who are trying to go down there who already don't like the government. I see. Um, But yeah. He was doing that. I guess it's, you know, it's a good way to screen out people and make sure everyone's, you know, hasn't caught it in the interim. Because that's that's the issue. It's like there's this like we were, we were discussing before the show, like if you get tested five days before you're going to travel somewhere mm-hmm. so that you can have time to get your results because results are taking more and more time to come back, then there's no way of knowing between those in those five days if you were to catch it. 
Um, right, which makes it pretty useless. So, yeah, to test people when they arrive. I mean, it assumes, I guess, that they don't catch it at the airport and it's too early, but it seems like that would be a pretty rare case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. Lots of news. Lots of things happening. A little bit <laughs> like it's kind of there's at least some hope on the horizon, which is which is a nice change. Yeah. Right. The vaccination stuff does seem very hopeful. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's let's start. Uh, let's start in with getting back to Spain and the Spanish, the quote unquote Spanish miracle. So. Mm. First, I think we should go back to uh, the 1920s, 1930s, and get a sense of what was going on in Spain. Where was Spain at? Um, why did they need a miracle to happen? Um, and if, so why don't you give us kind of the breakdown of like a little bit of the history of what was going on in Spain in the in the first half of the 20th century? Yeah, so... What happened, I mean, Spain definitely ended a miracle by the 1950s and 60s because in the 30s, they had this terrible, bloody conflict, the Spanish Civil War. Um, it lasted three years, 1936 to 1939. And it was between the um, Republicans, who were the government in power, kind of the status quo, who was supported by the Soviet Union and also an international, it was called the International Brigade, um, uh, uh, people who wanted to fight from the U.S. and from uh, Europe. And they were fighting against the nationalists who were who were rebels um, supported by Nazi Germany and fascists in, in Italy. Um, it was a horrible, really just awful conflict. Um, the U.S. ambassador, whose name was Claude Browser, wrote a book in the 50s and he called it a, a dress rehearsal for World War II, which, of course, was kind of brewing around the same time. Um, the death toll is is controversial. Like no one really knows how many people died, but it was between 200,000 and on the higher end, like more like 600,000, which is the same as the American civil war, actually 600,000, but lots and lots of people died. Um, it was also an event that drew a lot of like interest from, from writers and artists at the time. George Orwell wrote a memoir about his time. He fought in the Spanish civil war. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a short story about it. Ernest Hemingway was there um, reporting about it. He actually met his third wife during the Spanish Civil War, Martha. And uh, Pablo Picasso did one of my like favorite Picasso pieces, uh, Guernica, which is like a big, it was based on this bombing of a, ba a Basque village, Guernica. And I had some teacher who told me that in it, you can see like a swastika. I'm not really sure if that's true. I couldn't confirm that online, but um, that was his like anti-war piece. Um, so it was a very like pivotal moment in like Europe and especially in Spain, um, just a violent, violent conflict. And out of it, uh, comes this new leader of Spain, um, Francisco Franco, who was ruled with like a bit of an iron fist in the, in the years to come. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about his attitudes towards tourism because I know you had more research on that, but yeah, Franco, I mean, Franco was a nationalist, and he had come up in the Spanish army initially as one of the officers from the Balaic Islands, which is like Ibiza, Mallorca, Menorca, um, which had a certain amount of influx of, of foreign tourists, even in the 20s um, and 30s. And so and he had he, he was just very 
conservative, very pro Spain in the sense that he they were the idea was we need to keep foreigners out. Foreign ideas are not good. The Spanish way is a different way. And we need to be sort of self-sufficient because we can't trust the country, the other countries in Europe, the countries around us, sort of like their enemies all around. It's a little bit of like an kind of an old school pre-World War One idea of the world in which all of the European nations are enemies and are at odds. And so that was sort of his history before he took power. And, and so his his sense of certainly tourism and any foreign uh, foreign elements coming into Spain uh, was like sort of mistrust. And um, and that definitely colored the way that they dealt with tourism and, and foreigners during his regime. Yeah. So once he comes into power, he the the party line is this word uh, autarky, which is basically just like self-reliance. Everything was going to happen within Spain. They were going to be um, self-reliant and do their own thing and not pay attention to what was going on outside of their borders, which, of course, included people leaving Spain and people coming to Spain. Um, I want to touch on later how his attitudes about tourism change uh, after World War Two, but. Maybe you can talk more than, I guess, changes in tourism in Europe in general. Yeah, well, Europe at the time, so like first half of the 20th century, the tourism that exists is a lot of it is based around this idea of the grand tour. Wealthy Europeans, mostly from the UK and France and some, you know, and sort of the elite of, of the other European countries are traveling to Italy and France and areas of the former Roman Empire to try to learn about the history and sort of become enlightened through this like hands-on learning uh, about this great Roman civilization that that existed um, as part of their education. So young young people um, would go out and go mostly to Italy and France and. So and Spain, while Spain had been part of the Roman Empire, Spain was sort of seen as kind of a, a backwater. Spain was a, a difficult place to travel. Its infrastructure wasn't wasn't very good. Um, there was, of course, the civil war going on um, and and other just like there was a lot of political turmoil even before the civil war um, throughout the, the decades leading up to it. So Spain wasn't really visited in this grand tour sort of scheme of, of tourism going on. But another thing that was happening was that a lot of people who were traveling for leisure were, it was sort of like a spa tourism. A lot of people were going to, the idea was you would go to a hotel and you would go take like hot baths. There would be these like hot baths that you would do. And that was this idea that was like cleansing and healthful. And, um, or you would go to a, a hotel that was on a, cold ocean or sea and you would take cold dips in the water because that was seen as like this way to like improve your uh, fortitude and and to get healthier and to get away from the dirty cities and that started to change as the like medical and health community started to realize that really what where health benefits actually come from are getting out in the sun hmm. uh, there was this clear connection between warm weather and and specifically like getting into the sun and health um the health benefits of that so 
there was sort of this changing idea that instead of maybe going to colder regions or going dipping in, in cold water, you should go to warmer regions. And this this starts to change where people think about where they want to go travel and starts to make Spain a more enticing place for these early tourists that are um, that are that want to go abroad, mostly, you know, British and French and German upper class people. Britain also passed in 1938. Uh, they passed a, a law called the Holiday Pay Act, which also just contributed to the increasing volume of tourists because now it wasn't just the most elite aristocrats that were able to travel on these long trips like the grand tours that they were taking to France and Italy. It was professionals and people who who had, you know, office jobs and those sorts of things were now given a specific amount of time to take off to go somewhere with their family. And this was this new tradition that was developing and was being supported by the government since, you know, you would get you would still be paid during your time, your vacation time. So all those things. It's pretty bad timing because <laughs> it's bad timing. Like they got this new thing. They could take vacations. Then all of a sudden the war hit and they couldn't right. go anywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't bad. certainly didn't help out for that first decade ish after the law was passed. But then coming into the <laughs> yeah. 40s and 50s that, you know, that's when that really sort of you start to see that take effect. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in Spain, as I said, Spain was not really on people's radar initially and even during as as franco takes starts to take power as we said he's very isolationist um spain is still seen as a place that's very difficult to travel to and spain itself they make it hard intentionally they make it hard for hotels to create partnerships and contracts with foreign travel companies and travel agents because they're not interested in in promoting tourism. Ideologically, they're not interested in it. Economically, they think that the big industries are the way for them to get their economy on track and the way for their economy to be self-sufficient, which is a huge part of their their political movement. And they're distrusting of foreigners. They're they're a very Spain is a very Catholic country, and Franco was conservative and very much aligned with the Catholic Church. So in that sense, too, they were fearful of and, and suspect of the foreigners that that were trying to come into the country and spend time on the beaches, wearing bathing suits, which they saw as like a moral abomination. So in in multiple ways, they were not interested in tourism or promoting travel as um as this new new phenomenon in Spain, even though from from other countries in in Europe, Spain was becoming more and more attractive as a place to travel to, even with the difficulties. So why don't we get to the actual Spanish miracle itself? We're coming up on the 50s. There is this interest in travel into Spain, but Spain is still mired in all sorts of uh, political problems and economic problems. So maybe you can get into some of those issues and and why they ultimately turned to this this new tactic. Yeah, it's interesting because like we talked about, Franco was not a huge fan of tourists. But in 1947, this American 
conservative reporter comes to Spain and and asks him how he would feel about considerable numbers of Americans coming to Spain. And Franco says, basically says, I, I would love that. And he talks about how great Spain is and how friendly people are and how beautiful it is. And hmm. it's a complete switch. And this happened, I think, for a couple of reasons, which you, you have to uh, look at, like, the state of the world at the time, which is the post-World War II years. Um, and out of, like, the ashes of the war, you know, Western Europe is pretty devastated. The U.S. is doing much better. They're kind of left as the only superpower in the world. And Harry Truman, who's the president at the time, is looking at the board and is trying to work with this threat, this threat of communism, perceived threat, and what they can do about Western Europe at the same time. So in 1946, the UN condemns uh, Franco and his regime in Spain. But Truman in 1947 refuses to do that. Then in 1947, Truman also gives this speech, which is known as the Truman Doctrine, which basically says that the U.S., their policy will always be to help like free people and to protect like free people from subjugation, which sounds like it would mean like helping like Spanish people against Franco. But Franco is an anti-communist because during the Spanish Civil War, um, he was fighting partially communists. And even during his regime, like Mm -hmm. the people who opposed him the most were often like communists in Spain. So he's not a fan of the Soviets. The Soviets um, were on the other side during the Civil War. And so he cozies up to the Americans more and more. I think in 1950 or 1949, the U.S. gives Spain a huge loan of like $25 million. And then 1953, they they enter like a pact with Spain. They can't call it a treaty because Congress is very nervous about making a treaty with anyone in Europe, especially Spain. So they call it a pact and they give Spain like a billion dollars, um, over a billion dollars. And this is making like isolationism to Franco seem less and less appealing. He's getting money now from the Americans who are giving money to like everyone in Western Europe to try to like battle communism. So this is starting to like mm-hmm, change mm-hmm. attitudes about... Um, how Franco sees the world and is going to approach the world and tourism is a part of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like like post-World War II, the amount of resources and support going towards the allied powers to try to rebuild them must've been pretty mm -hmm. attractive to Spain, who was kind of left out of that, that rebuild that happened in Germany and France and Great Britain all of that was helping their economies boom back. And there was like this great boom in all those countries. And Spain was kind of like sitting there on their hands, just kind of look, watching that happen and, and stagnating. And, and uh, it must have been very attractive for them to kind of get in the good graces of the U.S. and try to get some of that support. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Getting money and fighting communists at the same time, I think, was mm-hmm. made a lot of sense um, to Franco. Do you want to talk about the economics or shall um, I? <laughs> as, as far as like, as far as tourism is, is concerned, the country, I, I think economically, they, the 1950s, they did start to see a small increase in tourism. And a lot of it was happening, obviously, without the support of the Franco regime. I mean, officially, they were more focused on industrializing the country, mining and other industries. And they were sort of trying to plan them out. But what was happening were there there was this demand coming in. And so there were Europeans that were starting to trickle in. And the hotels, even though they weren't allowed to create 
contracts with foreign travel agencies, they were actually going around the government and just creating partnerships and bringing in foreigners without the consent of the government. And the government was so focused on other things. They were sort of like, they were they were just kind of ignoring what was going on as tourism kind of grew. And, and you know, tourism was starting to bring in some money and there were, there was pushback from the Catholic Church and, you know, other conservative organizations that felt like they, you know, they were worried about what this was going to do to Spanish culture and, and the morals of the Spanish people. But what really made it difficult for them to ignore was that tourism seemed to be increasing, but revenue from tourism was not increasing. In fact, in like the mid 50s, they they were starting to see big increases year over year in, in tourism, but they were not seeing any revenue increases, which meant they had a real issue with with the black market. Essentially, what was happening is people coming into Spain, instead of changing their money in Spain at a an exchange rate that the government had artificially set too high. There were people on the black market who were taking money out of Spain and exchanging it in the UK and in France at a lower rate and allowing tourists to come in with more pesetas than they would have gotten if they had changed it within the country. And and then they're spending those pesetas in the country, but it's ultimately, even though there are more tourists coming into the country, the the revenue isn't increasing because they're getting these pesetas at such a low exchange exchange rate. So I guess in part that fuels this these stabilization plans that get passed in Spain that end up devaluing the currency, which um, eliminates this incentive for people to go outside of to change their money outside of the country on the black market. And that devaluation also ends up, I think, promoting investment from the outside because suddenly it's cheap. Spain becomes very cheap to foreigners. Um, money, foreign money goes a lot longer in Spain. So foreign companies like, you know, the United States and companies in the U.S. are much more apt to invest because their money will go a lot longer. So that's that's sort of my my general understanding. I don't know if you want to color that in a little more, if you have more of a sense of it. But yeah, I think only that before it was either impossible or nearly impossible for foreign governments to like make investments in Spanish companies. And they changed legislation so that they could, which brought in all this like foreign money, which was huge for Spain. I guess the other things that this, these stabilization plans did was, like you said, they stabilized exchange rates. They froze salaries, which caused a lot of people to actually leave Spain um, in search of better work. But that also kind of helped to um, fuel the miracle because they sent back money to their families. So there's basically just money being like poured into Spain at the moment. And that helped uh, that helped this like incredible growth to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, too, was this this article I found called how the bikini saved Spain. And it's a really cute story. Um, this was in 1959, so after the war, and during this whole time of like the Spanish miracle. And there was this guy who's a big fan of Franco, um, living in this like beach town. And he had all these uh, tourists coming from Northern Europe and they the women were wearing bikinis and the Catholic church was very upset about this. And they 
started going into the process to excommunicate him. So he took, in the article he says he stuffed his jacket with newspapers and he gets on his Vespa and he drives nine hours to see Franco. And Franco is very impressed that he rode his Vespa there. And the guy tells him the whole um, story and about this. And Franco makes all these moves to show how much he supports this guy and this town and everything. And the church backs off. And so, you know, this is, they're giving like this sort of implicit approval to uh, the bikini in Spain and kind of pushing off the power of the church. And then this makes, again, Spain a more attractive place for tourists because before, like, like in many countries, there were like police patrolling the beaches and women were asked to like cover up or they would be like fined. So now there's like this approval from the government, um, which makes it a good place for, for people to go, for people to travel to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think over the course of, you know, the second half of the 40s and the 50s, the government basically just little by little it is kind of their position on where where they stand with foreigners and where they stand with tourists and tourism in general just start slowly gets eroded year by year as it becomes increasingly clear that a it's going to be beneficial for their economy in in the short term and b it's it's going to allow for all sorts of things to happen if they start to open up to the outside world that are going to be beneficial to their economy even you know in the mm-hmm. medium and long term um so it's 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 like it just becomes like overwhelmingly clear that they they need to shift course um and yeah definitely well they do this they they see this and they make like they make concrete actions to do it um i'm gonna talk about the the ministry of information and tourism which is basically like seen by some as like a propaganda place but they they know like you talked about that spain has this reputation among some europeans of like not a very nice place to visit you've got like, rough it so their line they come out with this tourism slogan which is spain is different and all these like beautiful posters, Spain is different of like, you know, fountains and beautiful Spanish countrysides. And they're taking this weakness that Spain is like not like Europe, but it's like an exotic place. So it's like an interesting place to visit. It's an adventure. So that that's them like, you know, courting tourists, wanting court tourists to come and and be in Spain. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting flip from like Spain is different and bad, which was its reputation to Spain is different, <laughs> but Maybe it just means it's not boring. Maybe like Europe, maybe the rest of Europe is boring. And what you mm-hmm. really need in your life is some something that's like, that's not just the same old, same old. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, the Spanish miracle is called the Spanish miracle because starting in 1959, 1960, when all of these changes are, are made to the economy, these stabilization plans, as they call them, the economy booms, the GDP of Spain ticks up at a faster rate annually for the next 10 to 15 years than most countries in the world. Um, I think Japan outpaced them during that time. Japan was also on this post-war boom. But Spain, which had been stagnating for years and years through all this political turmoil and, of course, economic problems that came from that, suddenly started to grow. And yeah, this tourist influx had a huge impact leading up to that and then continued to grow tourism in Spain continued to grow during that period and fueled the increasing GDP you know the revenue coming into the country Um, there was all sorts of investment coming in from the U.S. as you said to build hotels but also to to support new industries Um, and between this increased tourism and and the new investments coming in 
from abroad uh, and the uh, remittances coming back from from Spaniards who had left the country and were sending money back in, that all fueled this uh, this massive boom to the point where, I mean, I was actually really surprised when I looked up overall tourist visitors country by country across, across the world. If you look at the top 10 tourist countries, Spain is number two in the world. There are more tourists coming to Spain than there are tourists coming to the United States. There are more tourists in Spain than tourists going to Italy, um, even though Italy is just sort of considered one of the behemoths of tourism in the world. There's more tourists in Spain than there are in China, which is just, I mean, the story of tourism in China, I think, is like over the past 20 years has been has been crazy and China is just such a huge country too. I mean you're talking about just like a different volume of people but at the same time Spain is number 2 behind France in global tourism. Hmm. So um not a huge country and certainly like didn't start as a tourism powerhouse. Obviously Spain was far behind Italy and France um when Franco took power but has grown to become the second biggest tourism economy in the world. Yeah, I, I mentioned this before, but when I when I had German colleagues, like all of them wanted to go to Mallorca and like that's where you go when you're German. And I think for mm -hmm. British, the British too, like this is a, like if you want to go to like a beautiful beach, like you go to Spain if you're a Northern European or a Western European. So, yep. which makes sense. Um, it makes sense to us now, but it's interesting to see how that really changed in the last, last century. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, let's leave it at that. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Yesterday in Trav, where we post about going on to travel and other info from episodes that didn't make it into the podcast. And watch your feed for our next episode on Nixon's trip to China, which I'm very excited about. Yes, me too. Um, I'm, I'm excited to, to do some research since I actually don't know a ton about it but yeah make sure to uh email us if you have comments uh if you have feedback you can email us at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com and please if you enjoy the podcast tell a friend review us on apple podcasts subscribe to the feed uh and thank you we will be back with more soon <laughs>